Welcome to On The Record, a podcast featuring candid conversations with entrepreneurs, business leaders, academics, and cultural influencers. Today's episode features WiseLine CTO, Anibal Abarca, interviewing Juan Guerra, head of RappiPay Mexico. Rappi is a popular on-demand delivery company based in Colombia that raised a billion dollars from SoftBank in 2019, which is still the largest single investment transaction in a Latin American tech company. Juan and Anibal discuss entrepreneurship, the payment ecosystem in Mexico, and the merging of e-commerce and financial services. Remember, to accelerate your digital product development needs, please visit wiseline.com. Anibal, take it away. Hello, everyone. This is Anibal Labarca. I'm CTO at Wiseland, and I'm happy to share this episode with Juan Guerra, who is currently uh, the head of RapiPay, and and he's um, our guest today. Hi, Juan. How are you? Thank you for Hi, uh, joining Great. us. Great. Thanks for inviting me. I actually I manage a company called Tarjetas del Futuro, which I'll tell you a bit more about in a few moments. <laughs> talking about uh, discussing on, on, on what are the trends and what's the future on, on, on payments and, and fintech and, and, and the e-commerce ecosystem. That's, uh, that's great. Um, I, I would like to start getting to know a, uh, a bit more about uh, your background, Juan. Uh, I, I know you were, uh, at least uh, for a few years, you were working in the UK you had experience working with large banks, but you are also an entrepreneur. Um, why don't you walk us through your your background and kind of your professional experience? Sure, um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit of an edge case. So I, I couldn't afford university in Mexico where I'm from and realized it was almost free in Germany. So I went to do my undergrad in Germany. I came back after that looking to get into microfinance. It was I graduated in early 2007 and Mohammed Yunus had just joined the Nobel Peace Prize for microfinance and I thought, oh my God, this would be amazing in Mexico. I want to help contribute. So I came back. I didn't get to contribute that much because at a, at a junior level, you know, you're, you're not really going to move the needle that much, but I was super passionate about inclusion. This is 2007 and your major in Germany was in? I finished, I graduated in 2007. Okay. Uh, and what was and your I, major on? Uh, business administration, okay, business. which for some reason involved a lot of informatics and coding. Uh, don't ask me why. And uh, well, yeah, I spent some time in, in Poland as well, learning Polish. So I, I learned a few languages. It's, it was super fun, a really interesting experience, very intense, lots of hard work to pay my way through, came back, got my first job at City, uh, working for Vanamex, building the small business banking unit, which at the time was kind of like a startup within the bank. And now, you know, it's as large as credit cards. It's a huge business. But this, you know, 2007, there was really nothing going on for, for small businesses and banks, large banks at least. And then, the, you know, the, the month after that, the mortgage crisis hit. And then I saw Citi's share plunge to $1. It was very, very dramatic times. Um, and I was there for almost three years. I then joined a microfinance fund. We were funding microfinance institutions. That was really a lot of fun. It was a startup with maybe nine other guys, a few ex from New York who came down to Mexico to build this kind of second tier lender. 
getting funds from institutional investors and then funneling them through to so funds and, and microfinancieras in the heyday. And then I got the scholarship to go and study so in the UK, which this, is how, yeah. These loans were going, uh, sorry to, to interrupt, these, go, these loans were going not to the new kind of generation of fintechs, but it was going through the, uh, like the, the well-regulated and established microfinancieras and so forth. So and these kind of, kind before of the fintech almost wave, financial institutions. Yeah. yeah, so before the fintech wave, we had another boom in innovation, which was the non-bank non, uh, non financial institutions, MBFIs, uh, and there was specific regulation created for them in Mexico. So SOFOLs first, and then SOFOMs. Uh, and, and so some of us managed to live through that wave of innovation in the mid-2000s, late-2000s. Um, and now we're kind of seeing a second wave in Mexico with the, with the fintechs, and I think Elaborate on that in a moment. Uh, but, but back to the story, we were lending to the Sofomics, not to the end borrowers. Um, there was kind of a gap for these. And, and for banks, it was an awkward relationship, right? Should they lend to these institutions? Were they competing against them? And so it, it's not very dissimilar to what we've seen more recently with the fintech wave. So yeah. I'm kind of saying in a certain way, we've seen this before. And, um, and, and after that, I, I moved to the UK to, to study um, masters and uh, after which I joined an insurance company, Prudential. I, I had a lot of fun there, um, but decided to do something a bit radical and uh, quit comfort and the cushy job with a lovely view of the Thames River for, uh, for a startup life. And I decided <laughs> to set up... Uh, student, well, it was first a crowdfunding platform helping people pay for their postgraduate and professional education in the UK. They could come from anywhere in the world, but, um, but I really wanted to innovate in that space. I felt that you know, microfinance was going in the right track, but not being able to finance one's uh, further education was socially wrong and a problem that I could probably fix with a bit of technology. Which is uh, I, still a very large problem, a very, is, very interesting problem to solve. It is hard not to crack. and It's very intricate because of the relationship between, well, how, how private and public sector partner or not in that space. And it, it's really a really interesting problem that no one has fully figured out in, in no country in the world. And, and in that uh, but, startup, you, yeah. your, your target or your customers were um, uh, British uh, students or what market were you focused on? They could come from anywhere. Okay. They were mostly British because lending to foreign students is a bit more complicated when it comes to the collections. But we had, I think, about a 65-35 split, so quite a large international contingent. And, and we, have, we had mostly master's students, but a bunch of them were also uh, coding bootcamp students. And I love coding bootcamps because this is a literal, there were many examples like this one, but, but a literal case there was this guy from Venezuela who was weighing tables and was a talent. You know, he, he had huge tech talent, but he couldn't afford not to work because he needed to pay the rent, but he was admitted in this coding bootcamp. And if only he could get to work there, to, to do the course, he could be earning a lot more money and then he would be kind of 
on his way. So the way we solved for that was by just pulling one and come and crash in my place for three months. So you don't have to pay the rent and then, uh, you know, you'll be, you'll be good to go. So it wasn't a very professional endeavor from my side. Uh, I was, uh, I mean, I was so invested in it. It was my whole personality got fused with this project. Um, our, our mascot was the elephant and I used to run around dressed up like an elephant and I was ridiculously passionate about it. It was my whole life for four years, out of which the first one and a half were just brutal and, and like I made almost no progress. But once I started learning how to fundraise and so on, started going somewhere. And so we started getting traction. We raised seed round for amazing investors and it was kind of a poster child for uh, FinTech for good or social impact investing with a FinTech component to it. And this was 2002 in London. It was just the beginning of the FinTech boom. Uh, I remember I, I showed up to a pitch with, yeah, go ahead. No, it's 2012 or 2012? 12, sorry. 12, 2012, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. Uh, 2012. So I, I was invited to a competition by InnoTribe from Swift at uh, level 39. And I showed up in my elephant onesie and I pitched the business. There were some really, really good entrepreneurs pitching that day, like Michael Kent from Asimo, for example, was there. Uh, and I didn't win uh, one of the first three places, but I did win audience favorite. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that got me a, a six month uh, space in level 39, uh, which meant my, well, the office just next to me where the Revolut guys when they were starting out. So I got to see a lot of that be born, which was a super exciting time. Like I was just kind of at the right place at the right time. I was not particularly interested in fintech as such. I wanted to help people further their education. I was passionate about it, but almost as a happy accident, I ended up at the, you know, the eye of the storm in the fintech revolution that was coming. So a bunch of my friends in the FinTech founders group, mostly FinTech founders group and, and on WhatsApp are now some of the darlings of the industry. Uh, and, and some are falling from grace recently. So we'll hopefully get to that point. I'll, I'll come to that in a moment. So um, yeah, that was, the, that was the environment that I was uh, entrepreneuring in when suddenly the UK government released uh, or, or launched the student loan scheme for masters and professional courses, which meant we were no longer needed, so we closed shop. Uh, and there's a shout out to the Naked Podcast. Um, and some of the FinTech guys in London, McDadios is involved, the Future Farm, they're called. So I talk a little bit more about how that created an identity crisis for me in that podcast. Um, and hopefully some of you will enjoy that. But after that, I, I, I thought, you know, after this, what do you do, right? And I, I figured that so I really wish... Yeah. What happened there was the, the government kind of replaced the service that you were or or the, the service that you were offering. Uh, so suddenly your service was not longer uh, valuable for that market. And, and so Correct. just out of the blue, that happened. Yeah. One day you didn't have anything in uh, like a new way of growing that company. Right. Well, that that was crazy. Yeah, it, it reduced the market to such an extent that it was no longer viable and, and it was impossible to get venture funding for that. Um, and and it, it did kind of happen from one day to the next because there were some 
uh, political changes going on in the UK, and some ministers uh, were shuffled around, and uh, a drastic change of policy, even though there had always been discussions about whether that should be done. And so our investors and ourselves decided, well, in the meantime, let's try and solve this problem, and we'll see what happens. So as a social business, or, or a, yeah, as an impact-driven company, it's a good way to go, I guess. Um, now, when you've been at it for four years and you hire people and so on, it's tough. It's tough in the ego, and it's then tough to find good jobs for, for everyone. But I, I guess everyone's in a really good place. So it was, as far as these things go, really good and really clean. It was actually at Student Funder that I saw some of what's been going on in Mexico and you touched on one of your questions in fintech, the authorization of fintech. So at the time when I started out, consumer credit was not a regulated activity. To get a consumer credit license, you need to fill out an online form and literally send a 74 pound check to the office of fair trading. I didn't, I've never written a check in my life. I have to YouTube how to write a check. And then I sent this check and I got my license to engage in consumer credit, um, which is now uh, an activity regulated by the FCA. But so peer-to-peer -peer lending was a completely unregulated activity. And then what happened was, well, without going into too much history, there was a lot of, I, I think this was prompted by the controversy around Wonga and their lending rates, and that prompting the FCA to really have a look at consumer credit and then deciding that it should be a regulated activity, which then meant peer-to-peer -peer lending would become a regulated activity. And so we had like a grandfathering into the FCA authorization, which is quite similar to what's going on in Mexico right now with the fintechs being approved. If they were already operating before, they were grandfathered into an approval regime that the CNDV is putting in place. So I've kind of seen that before firsthand myself. And I think one of the things that we can be proud of is as we wound down the company, we put the portfolio in the hands of a third party that would see it run down so no one lost their money. It was the first instance of a peer-to-peer -peer lender anywhere in the world, as far as I know, that had actually activated this. So the FCA was quite interested in our case study and making sure that everything ran smoothly. Uh, so, so uh, yeah, I'm quite proud of that. Um, and I think some of that should have been incorporated into the FinTech law, but it's still not there in Mexico. So th these are some of the lessons learned that I think should be applied. So just to finish, come back to the story, having closed down Student Funder, I set up a consultancy to help banks work with FinTechs. So I, I thought I you know, spoke both languages. And if you could combine the innovation from the FinTechs with the distribution from the banks, you know, FinTechs win, banks win, and the clients win. So I, I set up a company called Waterfront Ventures, and my star client was something that UK. I loved working with those guys. It was like a family. It was really a magical place. Really, really fun. Really good organization. And we launched a bunch of projects with a bunch of tech and fintech companies within a year. So you know, the first project took me about six months, and then I got the hang of it, and the next one took three months, and the next one took three weeks. So we did really fun things like uh, connecting supply chain finance to invoicing platforms or building uh, one of the first uh, 
banking chatbots on one of the most popular messaging platforms in the world, uh, which they'll remain unnamed for now. Whatever uh, <laughs> here, I can tell you. No, just kidding. So really, really fun and, and kind of edgy things. Launched a debit card for children with a companion app. And then I was... And I guess yeah. connect or try, try to jump in a little bit ahead and connecting that part. Uh, now you jump from the... Well, you, you were still entrepreneur, you, you were consulting for, for bank, and then you came back to Mexico, um, and, 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 and you came back and, and worked for a large bank, and probably we can talk a little bit about that, but yeah. what was the main difference and, and, the, and the, the scenario that you found in Mexico compared to the, to the scenario that you saw in, in Europe, and probably in particular in, in the UK? Let me get to that in one second. So it was at the time that I had to return to Mexico to renew my visa. And while I was here, I was offered to join City of Anamex as a chief innovation officer, which I did for just under three years. And I have recently, in May, I moved to build a bank for, uh, it's, a, it's a partnership between Banorte, one of the largest banks in Mexico, and, uh, and Lapi. And now, dive into that, but first let me answer the question. So, so City was beginning or, or perhaps accelerating their digital transformation process and recruited a guy called Rodrigo Puri, who is now running this great hacking bank. Um, and I met Rodrigo at Santander, he was in Spain when I was in London, but through Santander we'd met and he asked me to come and, and give him a hand. So I was his first hire. And um, and I've been at Banamex before, at City Banamex before. Um, so I kind of knew the culture somewhat. And, and, you know, wasn't too shocked when I joined, even though I've been living in the UK for seven years now. And, and I had to readjust in several ways. And at the same time, so I, I'm now running innovation for City Banamex. And at the same time, the FinTech law is being drafted. And so I was... You know, one of the things I craved living in London was the ability to help Mexico develop in one way or another. And, and landing at that time was perfect for me to help shape uh, how the FinTech law would develop in certain ways. So, for instance, in Mexico, we don't have something as simple as escort accounts as such. By law, if you, you know, most FinTechs have the money kind of on escrow, all over the world and it's well understood that those funds belong to the customers. But in Mexico, what we had with fiduciary structures, which meant that you have to KYC each and every one of the end users of the FinTech, which would make the whole thing economically unviable. So that was one of the points that I raised on the law and it was addressed in a very Salomonic kind of way, um, but it just works. And, and there's a few other points, like for example, having a, a third party that will step in and manage the portfolio of peer-to-peer -peer lenders should they fall away. And so I was able to, to inform the, the regulators of certain guardrails that I thought would be useful from what I had just seen in the UK. I also mentored a few of the fintechs, so I got to know the lay of the land. And I founded the fintech group within the banking association so that we could discuss uh, 
all the externalities of the fintech law, which, for example, in Mexico, the fintech law, perhaps a bit of background context on this. The fintech law mandates, well, three, three things become regulated activities, and it mandates that banks open up APIs, and I'll explain this briefly. So it regulates uh, crypto assets, peer-to-peer uh, -peer lending and crowdfunding, and it regulates something akin to e-money, which was, all of which were previously unregulated activities. Companies which were engaging in these activities could be grandfathered into a scheme that the regulator is about to uh, approve or not of these companies and issue licenses, and they will become regulated subjects. At the same time, this law requires that banks open up APIs that enable uh, well, the location of branches and ATMs. Uh, some, something called aggregated data, which could be used for market research purposes, for example. And very importantly, making it easy for customers to take their financial information wherever they want. This third one is meant to fuel competition in financial services and help customers compare like for like so that it's a uh, yeah, more competitive industry. And it's quite similar to what the UK launched around open banking, uh, which was triggered by a study by the Competition Market Authority, CMA, which determined that banks were using their branch network um, as, a, as a barrier to entry. So to erode those barriers to entry, at least online, it should be really easy for customers to compare uh, products, banking products like for like, and to take their information to whichever provider they decided to work with. Um, and, and that yeah. means like provide, uh, provide or take your information that like, oh, you're, I already have an account, I already have a, like, uh, a certification or kind of a, at least a recognition from this bank and that I can take that to, to another bank so that identity is shared or is that that I can take, for example, I have a credit with one bank, one bank and, and if another bank is asking, is offering me a better service, I can move my, my, my credit easily from one bank to another. The second one is being addressed with different regulatory interventions, but I think that's where it's going to go. Okay. Turning banks into more of a utility provider, unless they up their game and start focusing on more value-added services. But this inevitably means better terms for consumers. So it, it's increasing competition. But it's, it's mostly, it, at least at this stage, it's mostly about making it really easy for you to go and ask for a loan somewhere else. For instance, and the way it works is as follows. Today, if you want to go and ask for a loan, they'll ask you for a bunch of papers like, hey, your account statement's for the last 12 months and you need to go to a branch and get them printed out or download a CSV and, you know, it's just really clunky experience. And so here you just have an API, you log in and you say, please give all my financial information or this financial information to this other provider for this specific purpose for this period of time. And so that sounds amazing. Control, yeah, it puts you in control of your data. Is that really happening? It will. Okay, but, it, but yeah. not yet, it's in progress. It's in progress, it's uh, small steps. I think the, the regulator has had to deal with more pressing issues, uh, like the, the falling away of a bank recently, for example. 
And so this agenda, it, I think, has lost some momentum, but it's going to happen. That's for sure. That's going to be that's going to be amazing and, and an amazing user experience for for many people. Let's let's jump a little bit um, okay. into or let's let's move to another topic that I that I think it's going to be closer at least to our day to day experience, uh, and and that's the 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 space where fintech is merging and overlapping with the e-commerce and the retail experience. And, and I think that's uh, a lot of what you are doing today. I yeah. think Latin America is a, and, and Mexico for sure is a, it's a great space to innovate and to offer differentiated services. Uh, what's going on in that, in, in that space and what's exciting for you uh, now yeah. that you are also working in that space? Yeah, it's... Uh... I think it's going to be the category killer for retail banking, the merge between e-commerce and financial services. Now, I think if we take a, a little step back and we look at what's happened in China and Southeast Asia, and if we look at what's happened in Europe, uh, I think Mexico is going to resemble a mix of both, but or, or Latin, perhaps, if I could speak for the continent. Could you a elaborate a little bit? Side. Sorry, yeah, sorry. Yeah. could, could you elaborate more? That. I think, at least from, from my experience, I'm, I, I think we, I, I have read a lot more from what happened in China. We know the story of WeChat. Um, I, I'm not quite uh, familiar with the, with the scenario in Europe. What, right. What's the okay. difference so, between those two? So let me start with China. In, in China, they leapfrog plastic and they went straight into digital payments. And there are many factors for that. But uh, make your payments successful in China doesn't necessarily apply in other countries. Uh, but but there are some elements. There are some elements of that that we'll see here in Mexico. I think the the takeaway from that Chinese and, and the Southeast Asian experience is having a digital platform that gives users plenty of reasons to use it makes it marginally, you know, marginal cost to then offer them financial services. That's just common sense. So if you already have a, a platform with millions of users, offering financial services on that platform means your acquisition costs of those customers are by definition going to be lower than a player that only offers financial services. Yes. And we'll, we'll get back to this point. Then in, in Europe, you know, you have a lot more penetration of financial services. Uh, Less, less of a gap in, in financial inclusion that you have here, although there's still work to be done. And then people have been, um, well, on the one hand, there was, a, there was the right cultural mood. People were, were, were still reeling from the banking crisis and, and feeling there was a deep anti-bank sentiment and looking for alternatives as a matter of principle which doesn't necessarily happen in Mexico. Uh, but, uh, but I think the, the Occupy movement had, had a ripple effect over the years in the UK. And it was kind of in that environment that FinTech emerged. And so some of the early adopters were kind of activist users who just wanted to not use a bank and, and, and try an alternative for its own sake. And then there was the, the whole user experience revolution. I mean, 
banking apps were terrible, websites were terrible, and there were these digital natives who provided a very basic solution to a very simple problem, usually one single problem, but offered an amazing experience. And that created a hub factor and people started adopting them. And they were lucky that they were in a, in a time which might perhaps be coming to an end when there was a lot of liquidity in the market. There were a bunch of VCs out there and, and there was significant funding available to the FinTech revolution. Now, and, and I'm talking, you know, a couple of weeks till now, some of these great uh, champions for the customer and the user experience and, and you know, people who lift the right values and offer financial services have been falling from grace because some of the products that they've been offering in some cases were not the most profitable products. And perhaps the bet was a longer term bet where they could build a marketplace or start lending or to, to become more profitable. But it seems the, the COVID crisis has made uh, liquidity more scarce and investors less, less patient. So we'll see if these guys can weather the storm. But even though some of the higher profile names are having trouble, there's a bunch of other fintechs that are doing really well. So I don't think it disqualifies the movement or the fintechs or anything. I mean, if you, most people don't love their banks, right? Uh, and, and it's kind of a blockbuster moment in certain verticals, in certain verticals. So blockbuster made mo most of his money from late fees, not actually renting movies. So if you ask people they didn't love blockbuster and if they had more convenient, less abusive alternative, they would switch, right? So a lot of people in Europe have been offered that alternative and they started switching. Now we might see, especially for neobanks, a phenomenon of, of uh, flight to safety. Yep. If it seems like some of these companies might not make it, that could lead to a fintech run, <laughs> maybe not a bank run, but a fintech run and, and take those uh, deposits back to bank. But for example, international money transfers shouldn't be suffering from this or other other services, property lending, not necessarily. Yes, of course. Um, and and yeah. also banks have, uh, they catch up. You no, know? they, they really invested in user experience. They invested yeah. in technology. We have heard amazing stories about innovation. You you have participated in, 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 in those. Uh, so yes, they, they are now also competing with those newcomers that uh, were offering uh, probably better products at some point, but not necessarily is the case anymore. Yeah, if you're a bank, you know, a billion dollars investment doesn't necessarily translate into automatic success. If you're a startup, a billion dollars makes or breaks your business as long as you can execute relatively well, right? Yes, of course. So, so the, the trickle down of that money, it just kind of, it tends to disappear in large organizations because of all the complexity that's involved. Uh, but, um, but there have been companies that have been raised raising quite a, even now in Mexico, uh, significant amounts of money. Now, coming back to the, the overlap of commerce, e -commerce and, and financial services. Mm -hmm. The way I see it is as follows. There, in Mexico, there are about a bit more than half of the population don't have access to banking. Uh, not, well, at least banks, perhaps financial services they do, but not through banks, right? They have no qualms about using one or another provider as long as it solves their problem, it's in the right place at the right time and so on. So that's a huge portion of the population that's 
that's just there waiting for a solution. And a bunch of people who are banked aren't entirely happy with their banks. Now, if you have a, an app that already has millions of customers come, coming to it recurrently, and you start offering financial services on that app, your customer acquisition cost is bound to be quite low. Now, for, for I don't know, debit accounts, it might be a little tougher because I guess, as the saying goes, it's, it's easier to give money than to ask for money. So perhaps credit cards might be a little easier than, than debit cards or debit accounts to offer. But there are no rules here, so I'll just tell you some of my ideas. And then, um, so, so if you look at a lending business, and sorry for jumping all over the place, you have four sources of cost. Marketing, as I've just described, which for a super app which millions of, with millions of clients, it's relatively low. And it's Golf. definitely lower than- Almost zero, yeah. Almost zero, definitely lower than a FinTech, right? Plus you can make this customer profitable through various different offers, aside from just the financial services. Then you have operating costs. So as a super app, you are at no disadvantage vis-a-vis -vis a fintech. So your operating cost is at least, at least as low as a fintech. Then you have credit risk. Credit risk as a super app that the customer uses for a bunch of different things. You have a lot more data. So you can make much better decisions about whom to lend to and whom not to lend to than any given fintech out there. In fact, sometimes better decisions than banks as well. And then finally, you have the Just cost to of capital. Yep. Early, add a comment to, to the third risk uh, on financial risk. It, it also has, I, I will say, dependencies, right? Because you are adding value to the customer in different transactions. And, and um, I'm, I'm going back to the case of WeChat. Um, I, I guess you don't want to stop using or putting at risk your social network plus your collaboration with your with your with your friends and with your peers and with many more people that you collaborate every day because you didn't pay your small loan potentially right i i i think there is added value on top of the of the specific value that you get in the financial service and and also incentives that will uh, prevent you to to default in that case no uh, from from a personal perspective that's my hypothesis in, in that, uh, elaborating a little bit more in that idea that you're sharing. For sure. If you're going to default, you always choose whom you're going to default to. Yep. <laughs> and yeah, so yeah. It, it, depends, it depends on your, your relationship with that provider. If you're going to default to them or you're going to default with someone else. Now, if you need help and you raise your hand, like these things can always be worked out, but, uh, but that's correct. Uh, and the fourth are, risk or, or the fourth? Um, the fourth source of cost is the cost of capital. There, the banks have the advantage, but as soon as a super app gains a banking license, then the super app has three advantages over a bank and no disadvantages. That's why, I, you know, as Chief Innovation Officer at City, I, I kind of saw it coming. I, I thought Uwe, Rappi, Marcelo Libre were in a really good spot to buy Didi, you know, to compete for this space. And I think they'll be, they'll be fighting hard to, to grab this space. Unfortunately, Uber closed down uh, Uber money to focus on Uber Eats with the pandemic. So I guess the pandemic hurt that development in that way, but it also helped the development 
in a way that it's really made the delivery services explode. So yes. the user bases for the Rappi, Macau Libre, um, last mile you know, um, solutions has exploded. And with that explosion, that means a lot more recurring users. And with a lot more recurring users, a lot more potential customers for retail financial services. So it's, I think it's inevitable that it happens. And if these platforms play their cards right, I think they have every advantage to, to gain share from banks and also to gain share from the unbanked. Because That's their amazing. operating costs are so much lower that they can afford, that they will see these customers as attractive, profitable customers. That's super interesting. I, I, um, I, 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 I didn't see or I haven't seen that specifically like coming in from that perspective and, and the advantages of the, of the super apps as, as you're describing it, but it, it makes a lot of sense. And I think that makes the, the space even more interesting and, and, and exciting for sure. And, and I do think that the market in Mexico and Latin America and, and the scenario is gonna resemble a little bit more uh, what happened in Asia. And, and, and I think the opportunity uh, is still open. I, I don't think there is still a lot of opportunity in the market for new apps or for the current app, super apps to, to take over that, that opportunity, which is going to be very exciting. And, and for sure, you are going to play a very important role. So congratulations on, on, on your, your so. responsibility. Thank you. That's amazing. Yeah, we're super, super excited to be doing this. That's great, Juan. Um, I, I think just before we close, I, I, I would like to ask you for any closing comments, potentially any recommended readings, any, anything that, that you would like to share with us before, before we, we close this conversation. And for sure, this is a, a huge topic that we would love to have you back for a, for a second episode. But uh, for now, I, I would like to let you share something else before we can uh, finish this podcast. Sure. If you don't have a lot of time, do watch the Times video on WeChat. Um, do watch that. I think it was a KPMG video on the Invisible Bank. It's a bit older, but it's quite illustrative. Um, anything from Brad King, Breaking Banks, if you can read the book. I haven't read it, but I'm sure it's great. <laughs> uh, 4.0, I have it there. I read like 10 pages, but I'm working on it. Uh, that, that paints a picture. Uh, and the main idea from, from these videos is that banking can be just, you know, there's a, I think it's a quote from, from um, Bill Gates. Uh, everyone needs banking, but not necessarily banks. Right? The biggest financial institution in the world right now is and Financial. And it's not, you know, 50 years old, whereas City is 200 years old. The, the future of financial services belong to the past not too large, and financial services will be embedded in other things that we do. I think in, in retail for consumers, uh, this idea of a provider that does just financial services will start, we'll, we'll start to move away from that and experience financial services through other solutions that do something over and above just financial services for us. 
will have access to financial services on almost a, a seamlessly way while we perform added uh, value-added activities in our day-to-day. -day. Exactly. In the example of WeChat, it had to do with a communication platform similar to WhatsApp on steroids. And in the case of Alipay, it had to do with an e-commerce platform. If, if you were using services from Didi, it would have to do with mobility and delivery, and with Rappi, it has to do with delivery entertainment and a bunch of other services that are being rolled out. That's amazing. We are looking forward to hear more about uh, the, the, the news from, 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 from you and from, from the ecosystem in, in Mexico and Latam. And, and I think we're looking to uh, see very exciting times coming in. I'm sure. We'll keep you Thank posted. you very much, Juan. It was great talking with you. Pleasure, guys. Bye-bye. Thanks for having me. Bye.